0: Today's podcast is sponsored by Genesis Care, national independent cancer care provider and experts in breast health, diagnostics and treatments. Hello,
1: welcome to And Then Came Breast Cancer, the podcast for everyone whose life has been touched by the disease. I'm Victoria Derbyshire and my world changed in 2015 when I was diagnosed. I lent on my friends my family, and of course, the medical professionals who ultimately helped to save my life. The Future Dreams Breast Cancer Charity believes that no one should face the disease on their own and wanted to create a podcast series which will be there essentially 24 hours a day for those, what am I going to do, moments when your life gets changed too. An honest friend, you could say, not just for you, but also your own family and friends who are perhaps looking for guidance, support and answers. We've built up a library where we've talked about things like friendship and relationships and fear and faith. We've looked at the latest medical advances. We've had really open conversations about wigs, about reconstruction surgery, about cold caps. There have been one or two tears. There have been lots of laughs because as you probably know, sometimes a bit of dark humour helps just a little. And we even won a British Podcast Gold Award for services to the breast cancer community. There is so much more to talk about, hence we're on series three. So welcome to the third series of our podcast. Today we are looking at advocacy, or to put it simply, standing up for yourself. Many of us have had a moment where perhaps a medical or health professional is telling us one thing, but somewhere in our heads we're thinking, but I know my own body and I'm not sure that's right. This, by the way, is not about doubting the medical establishment. Goodness knows it saved my life and thousands of others. But it is about having the courage to say, are you sure? Or would it be okay if I got a second opinion on that? Or can you explain a little bit more? especially when you're anxious and scared and having the kind of conversations about your future you'd probably rather not have. So it's about working with the medical professionals, not against them. Let's hear from our three guests today. And in keeping with the proud tradition of this podcast, I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves.
2: Hello, my name is Danielle, and I'm here in West Yorkshire, where I am a knitwear designer, and I'm working with a I work in a wool spinning mill in West Yorkshire. So I got involved with the Future Dreams breast cancer charity because they have a knitting therapy group, and we have kindly agreed to sponsor them with yarn, so all their ladies can enjoy knitting together and bonding together. So that's how I kind of got in touch with the Future Dreams. Charity, and also we kind of bonded over the fact that I have been through breast cancer myself. I had a mastectomy seven years ago, Um, so yeah, I just kind of I'm happy to get involved with the charity, and I'm, I'm just currently working on a fundraising campaign with them. So yeah, it's nice to kind of be around people who've been through the same
1: experience as myself, and just try to help in some way. Thank you, Danielle.
0: Hi, I'm Gemma. Um, I am 39. I've got two children. I've got a little boy, Lucas, who's nine and a little girl, Georgia, who is seven. Um, I was diagnosed with secondary breast cancer um, coming up four years ago now. Um, I was diagnosed secondary from the de novo, as we call it, meaning that you were diagnosed at the the time of diagnosis, you were already secondary. Um, Gemma, before
1: you carry on, could you want to explain what secondary breast cancer means? Because some people might not know.
0: Yes, of course. Um, So secondary breast cancer is where the breast cancer cells have already spread from the breast area to a more distant area in the body. Um, so in my case, when they found my breast cancer, it had already spread to my bones. Um, other areas that it can spread to, um, it tends to spread to, it can spread anywhere, but with secondary breast cancer in particular, um, they tend to look at the brain, lungs, liver and bone. Um, so yeah, mine, when they discovered my primary, well, sorry, when they discovered my breast cancer, they discovered that it had already spread to my bones. Um, so I was just 36 at that time. Um, my children were very young. I was a very, very busy, um, lawyer. I was a partner in a a local law firm, um, here in Wiltshire and yeah, I, life was a hundred mile an hour. I was a busy mum trying to balance a very demanding job and a very, um demanding young children. Um, I found Future Dreams because I found Secondary Sisters and a community organization online um, where we support others with secondary breast cancer. Um, it was founded by two other secondary breast cancer um, ladies, um Nikki and Laura. Um, and we've been on year, a previous I-
1: series actually of our, of our podcast.
0: Yes, and do a lot with um, Future Dreams as well. We hold all of our um, Secondary Sister events at Future Dreams. We do workshops um, for ladies every quarter we try and do it. Um, we also do other fundraising events there with them. We did the Climb at the or 2 with Lorraine um, Kelly. Um, But last year, I joined them as the third secondary sister um, to try and help them um, because it's obviously it's quite a large community. Um, We're all three of us are going through our own cancer treatment as well. So we all have ups and downs. So it's quite useful for there to be more of us involved um, so we can help out when others are, are not feeling up to it. Um, but yeah, I think that's my, that's my background. I now I, I don't work. I try to phase back to work after my active treatment finished. Um, but I found that there was not really a stress-free way to do the job that I was doing. And as a secondary patient, you know, every, I feel like everything that I do every day um, has a potential impact on my body and my health. Um, and so I've, I decided to focus on things like my mental health, yoga, exercise, um, things that I can do to keep my body strong um, and I was very lucky that I've got income protection as well so I don't have that financial strain and, and they're very good at not pressurising me to try and go back so I'm very fortunate in that sense.
1: Thank you Gemma.
3: I'm Joanna Franks, I'm a breast and oncoplastic surgeon, I work between UCLH and um, some other hospitals around London and I'm also proud to be a trustee of Future Dreams. And we should say that uh, Jo
1: has legged it here in a taxi from surgery. She was in the operating theatre at 8 o'clock this morning. She got rid of the, the masks and the gowns, got into a taxi because the Wi-Fi at the hospital was not good enough for you to join remotely. So we are very, very grateful and we know you have to get back because you have more surgery at midday. Thank you, Joe, for being with us. Um, Briefly, Danielle and Gemma, I just want to ask you, this is is an episode about knowing your own body and how you have those conversations with medical professionals. Before you were diagnosed with cancer, did you think you kind of knew your body pretty much and what it was telling you or not? Gemma, go ahead. I mean, particularly as you have Georgie and Lucas.
0: So I think I was always aware of body changes. My mum's a nurse and so she was always really... You know rigorous with telling us put your sunscreen on, check your boobs, um, you know, anything in your body that's telling you that something's not right, listen to it and go and get it checked. Um I think it's easier to say that than to do it because especially as a busy mum, you're thinking, when have I got the time to go to the doctors or the hospital and get checked. Um but I I did get checked when I I found I had a bit of thickening in my breast. My nipple was inverted after I finished breastfeeding my daughter. Um, so about a year after I finished breastfeeding, the breasts still looked odd. Um, there was still a thickened area and still part of the nipple inverted. Um, so I did go to get checked. And I know um, you know, some people say that their GP didn't refer them because they were too young. Um, I was told it was probably fine because I was too young, but my what, GP did. What age differ.
1: were you at this stage, Gemma?
0: At that stage, I would have been about 33. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, whoever I showed, sounds like I was showing my boobs to everyone, but whoever I showed it to um, said to me, you know, oh yeah, it does look odd, but you're you're too young for breast cancer. Um, I haven't got any family history of breast cancer. Um, there's no obvious connections, nor BRCA gene. Um, men and women have not had any of the connected cancers, so... In that sense, people kept telling me there was no red flags. So I was not—I wasn't a high risk. And what were you um, thinking? But I, I was thinking this breast just does not look right. Um, my gut was telling me that it just did not look or feel like my breast before children. Okay. Um, so I was referred to a breast clinic, um, but actually, because I didn't have any red flag or risk areas. Um, they did a sonogram and told me it looked like I had blocked milk ducts, but then I didn't get any of the checks because I wasn't any I wasn't high risk.
3: Pause there. What's a sonogram, Joe? I think you're describing an ultrasound scan. So um, most women have had an ultrasound at some point, usually during um pregnancy, so it's very similar, um but the gel is put on the breast, mm. and um in real time, the radiologist will look at all areas of the breast behind the nipple and usually up into the armpit as well. And can I ask your view, Joe, on
1: younger women being told perfectly reasonably you're
3: too young for breast cancer? I mean, we know that breast cancer is much more common as you get older and that's why the National Health Service Breast Screening Programme starts at around the age of 50. But that's not to say that younger women don't get breast cancer and we've got examples um, here with us mm-hmm. on the podcast. Um, so uh, what I find is that I think that women are intuitive. I mean, men probably are as well, but most of the patients that I see are female. And they will come and see me and they'll say, something's not right. And And I think it's our duty to listen to patients and make sure that we really leave no stone unturned. It, I mean, it can be very difficult to make some breast cancer diagnoses. And even with all the tests, sometimes it can elude us for some time. But I think patients need to feel that we have looked at everything um, and not leave with any uncertainty. Sure.
1: But I mean, Danielle, you you come in here because you have to, if I put it like this, you know what I mean. You have to convince the GP or get past the GP in order to be referred to someone like Joe ultimately. But tell us about your experience.
2: Yeah, I was 34. I was at university at the time and I had severe pain in this left side of my chest. And I remember clearly the day it started. I remember the change quite clearly. So I went to the university doctor. And again, the the conversation was you're too young for it to be related to the breast. We weren't even looking. You were how old at this point? 34.
1: Oh, right. Sorry. Yeah, you said that.
2: 34, yeah. I went to uni after another career. Um, so they did usual, they did chest x-ray, ECG. Um, They said to me it was anxiety relating to doing a degree at the time. So I was sent away. um, I continued to have pain for four years. And I went back four or five times to different GPs. I went home to my own GP. Again, I had the same conversation. Um, You're too young for anything to do with the breast. They said to me, you don't usually get pain with breast cancer. It's usually a pain-free lump that you'll find first. So they kind of just led me away from that. Um, I had more intensive looks at the chest area. I had um, a heart monitor for two weeks where they looked at my heart because it was just definitely a pain on the left side. It progressed then. It was pain under the arm and pins and needles down my left arm, things like that. So it was progressively getting worse over the period of four years. But I think what I found really hard was even my family then said to me, do you think it's psychosomatic? Is it really? stress-related? And I started to really struggle with my mental health because I thought, you know, how can I just carry on with my life when I'm in pain? But I'm, there's no answers. I really need an answer as to what this is. So at the last stage, I was nearly 38. And I had a conversation with my father and said, I'm going to go to the GP one more time. And if I get the same results, I'm going to have to just move on from this and agree that that it's in my mind. So I went to a GP, explained, and she actually sent me straight to breast clinic. And that was the first time that had ever been done. So I went straight to the breast clinic in the hospital here in Yorkshire. But the nurse at the time, she sat down and listened to me and she said, Yeah, we can't give you a mammogram. You're too young for a mammogram. So she said, I don't think there's anything we can really do. So I put my coat on and I was about to leave. And I said, I won't come again. Thank you for your time. I understand. You know, I'm worrying about nothing. And as I was literally walking out the door, she said to me, I'm really not happy with how long this has gone on. She said, I'm going to write here that you think you can feel a lump. And she said, that's the only way they will give you a mammogram. So they did the mammogram straight away there and then they took me straight in for an ultrasound there and then. And there was a seven centimeter tumor that needed a mastectomy, a full mastectomy straight away. Um, And I just felt strangely relieved that I'd found that I wasn't going crazy, that I knew my body and I was right to know and to go back. Um, So that was the difficult part for me was that long period of
1: Worry, basically. Joe, what is there anything that Danielle could have done differently, or did she do everything right?
3: I mean, I I think you did everything right. What we encourage women um, and young girls is to become breast aware. So we don't really advocate formal breast examinations anymore, but that women should understand the roadmap of themselves. So it's all about understanding your breast health. And we encourage women. Um, from when they're having regular menstruations to, you know, make sure that they understand what the breast and the area behind the nipple all the way up to the collarbone as well, because you can develop a breast cancer high up and into the lower armpit feels and looks like and to monitor for changes. And that if there is a change, you then alert medical professionals. And that's what both of you have done. You, you've you noticed something and you've said something feels not right and and one of the things that I think is quite important is if you can't find something in the first appointment, not to necessarily dismiss someone, but to make them empowered to be able to come back if things don't get better. So to say, actually, today everything looks okay, and on your first ultrasound there's some blocked ducts, as, as, as you've mm. had, um, and that might be quite understandable if you've recently been breastfeeding, but the breast doesn't look quite right, so why don't you come back in a six, about six weeks and let's see, mm. or let's see what's happening to your pain, and then sort of, it, you know doing a bit more. It's funny a you say sooner. that,
0: Joe. actually, because I feel like the, like you say, on there's only certain checks that they can do on certain dense breasts. And, you know, I, I just finished feeding my, my child. So they, you know, there was that as well that they were considering. But the one thing that I feel like someone could have said to me that they didn't is keep an eye on it. And if it's still like that in six months, then come back. I feel like that's the one thing that I almost kick myself that I now advocate for myself all of the time, but I just feel that right at the beginning, all I needed was for someone to say, "I've told you it's fine now, but please keep an eye on it and come back if it still doesn't improve or if it gets worse." In your case, Gemma,
1: you you had the ultrasound. It showed blocked milk ducts, and and at that point, you you thought, "Okay, I've, it, it's fine." Essentially, this is what the experts are telling you. You've done your bit then what happened?
0: Well, you've heard what you want to hear, haven't you? you? Everything's fine. Oh, thank goodness. It's not what I thought it was. Um, so you go away and for a while, that's enough to, to make you put it to the back of your mind. But, um, over the next year, year and a half, the thickened area, so my thickened area was, was right near my, um, armpit was right near my vascular system which is why how they think that it got out so quickly around to other areas of my my body so it was right on the side of my breast near my armpit um so that thickened area increased and my nipple became more and more inverted so it was almost like more of it was being pulled into the breast um and for a little bit I you know I told myself like you say Victoria oh I've got I've had it checked professionals told me it's fine it's fine um, but it was getting larger as well. Um, it was almost spilling out of my bra um, towards the time that I, I got it checked. And I I had private health care with work. So I thought, well, to give me peace of mind, I will go privately and just get this double check, just to be sure that everything is fine. Um, and especially now after time had passed. Um, so I went to private hospital. I had a wonderful um, consultant who was so lovely. Um, and she said to me, I get what you mean. It looks odd, but it feels softer than it looks. Um, it looked like it should have felt swollen and hard, but it wasn't. Um, but she said for, you know, peace of mind, we'll send you for a ultrasound and for a mammogram. Um, and I went in for the mammogram first and the, then I went for the ultrasound and I was laid there and he said, yeah, I'm not, this is not good. Um, and actually how he dealt with that at that time um, was quite traumatic because I I think I I I replayed that part of my diagnosis over and over because he just immediately said to me, This is not good. I can see this solid area. And then there was a couple of my lymph nodes as well that looked abnormal. Um, so I was taken back in to see my consultant. Um and they basically said, look, we think it's we think it's breast cancer. We need to send off the biopsy. They took a biopsy there and then we need to send that off to see what it is, what type it is, and therefore what treatment you need. Um, And there's a couple of lymph nodes as well that look abnormal. And I think this is where, as well as self-advocating, so going back for a second opinion, I think this is where my self-advocacy started again, because as soon as she said that the lymph nodes looked abnormal, I said, how do we know it hasn't gone anywhere else? Your lymph nodes are the gateway to the rest of your body. How do I know this isn't anywhere else? Um, so again, and I think because I was private, obviously there wasn't the same cost implications as on the NHS. And so she said, I didn't have any symptoms of anywhere else. Um, so for peace of mind, I was sent for a CT scan and a bone scan.
1: Joe, you work both in the private sector and in the NHS. Is there any truth to that, that for, for cost reasons, you might not be sent for a CT bone scan?
3: No. So I was going to say, um, if you've got disease which is seen in your lymph nodes at diagnosis, then you will be what we call staged, um, which is what happened to you. So you would have a CT scan and potentially some other scans. And there's different ways of staging people. And depending on which hospital you're in, there may be a little bit of variation as to what scan specifically mm. you get. But, but you will all all these women will be staged. Okay. Um, I think the difference that you may have found is that you' were able to leave probably with the knowledge that that scan was being booked and possibly even a time of when it was going to be. And that is not always possible in every hospital in all circumstances. And certainly, from my own family members who've been through um difficult diseases, I think uncertainty is what people like the least. So as soon as you know what you're dealing with, you can start to face what may be in front of you. So actually Mm. knowing that you're going to get a scan and when that scan's going to be is really powerful to being able to start to plan a little bit.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I went from that appointment to all of the scans and my results within two weeks, I think. Um, which everybody says, "Oh wow, that's a long time." But because of my work through secondary sisters, I know that actually there's people that were an awful lot longer than that. Um, which I just, you know, it, like you say, is the worst thing: is uncertainty and not having that a plan of how we deal with this. Um, so yeah, I I think I was sent for a CT and a born scan, and it was my CT scan came back clear. So that's of the organs. And then my bone scan came back showing that I had um, breast cancer cells. So it's not bone cancer, it's breast cancer in the bone, in my ribs, pelvis and spine.
1: And how did you process that information?
0: Um, I passed out. <laughs> did you? Yeah, so in my in both the um, ultrasound, when they said that, yeah, it definitely looks like cancer, I passed out. And in my um, appointment, where I came back, and they said, "We're well, sorry, it's in your bones. Um, you're treatable, but you're no longer curable." Um, I think my body just shut down, and I just I passed out. Oh. Um, so I came round on the floor like I was having a bad dream, thinking, "Oh, please don't be real." But mm. yeah, unfortunately, um, it was. And then this this journey began. Really, yeah.
1: If the nurse hadn't said to you, Danielle. Why don't you just say there's a lump, i.e., lie, let's be honest. Yeah. Then then your breast cancer probably wouldn't have been discovered at that time. It may have been discovered much later, and and things could have been a lot worse. Even worse.
2: You know, I was fortunate really. I had the mastectomy seven years ago, and they said it was at that stage there was nothing in the lymph nodes, so I was lucky and it was contained to the duct. So it was pretty much like ductal ductal carcinoma in situ at that stage DCIS um but they I definitely had that feeling that if it would have been left any longer that could have been very different um so yeah that feeling of wanting to say to people if you think that something isn't right then please please do please do go back and get it checked just because you know time can make all that difference to the Prognosis,
1: but you did. I mean, how many times did you go until that nurse said, "Just say there's a lump"? How many times in total?
2: Yeah, I think it was five times in total Mm. um, for quite quite intense investigations. And you know, they did the NHS is brilliant. They did do they did look into it. But I mean, for me, my only symptom was pain, and they still, even through my treatment, they said, "Oh, it's quite it's unusual. You don't really get pain." with breast cancer. This was seven years ago. So maybe things have changed now. My auntie, my mom's sister had exactly the same breast cancer as me with the same treatment and the same outcome. She'd suffered with pain as well, because I remember her saying to me, she used to feel like she was maybe having a heart attack. She was in her sixties. So she'd had exactly the same pain in the left side of the chest and then subsequently under the armpit. And after the mastectomy, that pain had gone completely, you know. So to me, I still believe that that was obviously relating to the to the breast cancer. Mm. But I still had that kind of battle that it wasn't the classic symptom of a lump that I had. So I yeah. think it's as well making people, like you say, to be very aware of your breasts and very familiar with your, what's normal for you. Yeah. So then you can pinpoint anything that is not normal.
0: I would say the same as well, because I had pain. I'd actually stopped sleeping on that side. Um, I was sleeping on the other side. So mine was my right breast and I'd stopped sleeping on my right side because it was uncomfortable and painful. Um, but I know, I mean, Joel will know better than me, but I think they've just recently taken pain off as a, a symptom of breast cancer um, on its own. Um but I, yeah, I mean, it, it just goes to show it's not, even if you don't think you've got the traditional signs of breast cancer, if you know your breasts, you check them regularly. If something changes and it's not right, then just get it checked.
3: <laughs> yeah. So pain without any other symptoms is unusual to be um, a breast cancer. Um, and, and both of you were, had pain with slightly different things. So... There was some nipple changes and some skin changes, and there was absolutely nothing. Um, And yes, you're right. We are looking at how we can manage the number of patients that need to be seen in the breast services across the UK. And one of the things that the Association of Breast Surgeons has looked at is breast pain without any other symptoms or signs. So the idea is that patients who have breast pain but no other symptoms or signs will be seen in a clinic And they will be seen by an experienced clinician and examined. And then depending on their age and what the examination findings are, they will then go on to have appropriate investigations. So it's not that they're not going to be investigated. Right. Please be assured. Can I ask you, Joe? what is the
1: line between a patient being uh, politely assertive and being a complete pain in the backside to someone like yourself?
3: (laughs) Because that's what we need to know. Well, I I think it's all about there being a relationship between the clinician, and and sometimes it's not a doctor, it may be an advanced nurse practitioner in in the Mm -hmm. breast service who are all excellent or a very senior clinical nurse specialist, um, and the patients. And it's about setting what one of my um, mentors taught me was called the therapeutic alliance. So you've got to feel that you are being listened to and that you're with a credible professional who understands the disease that you are potentially being investigated for and between you you need to understand how you're going to get to a point where you're both satisfied so for me a lot of it is about listening examining and doing that as we call the safety netting and rin fencing so if things are not right come back if things don't get better come back if this is a persistent problem come back and Patients will only feel empowered to do that if you've made the right atmosphere in a room so that you feel that actually you can say, "Okay, I understand you can't find anything now, but I'm still worried about this. Mm -hmm. So let's come back. And and for women who are menstruating, often a different part of your cycle is very good, which is why we often go for six weeks so that we know we're in a different part. Because breasts Mm -hmm. can feel very different in different parts of your cycle. So sometimes I will say, I can see that it's uncomfortable when I examine you. And it just feels a little bit bumpy, but I can't feel anything focal or discreet. I think it might be hormonal or related to recent breastfeeding or anything else. Come back in six weeks' time, let's have a look. And if it's still there, then we'll look a bit further to Mm -hmm. see what it
1: is. And sometimes when a medical professional, even when a medical professional says, come back in six weeks quite naturally as patients. We we don't want to be annoying. We know that you're really stretched. We know that the NHS isn't funded to the same level as other European nations. We don't want to get in the way. So we feel bad about what we might call Mm.
3: wasting your time. But uh, I often say to people as they're leaving, you are never, ever wasting my time. I would much rather see someone and deal with something early if it's there, or best be able to reassure you. Then you come back in six months, or twelve months, or eighteen months down the line, and we've got a much bigger problem to deal with. And, yeah. I, and I hope that all of my colleagues feel the same. But it is about making that relationship and that atmosphere. So, however busy things are, they're not busy for any in, too busy for any individual patient. And if someone like myself or a colleague has said, "Please come back in six weeks," then that's what we're expecting you to do.
1: Mm. Do you? think it's important for patients once they begin this experience to educate
3: themselves Mum, I always tell um, the people that I'm training up around me that the um, ladies who have breast issues and breast cancer diagnoses have a very strong band of other ladies around them and it's really important that we understand that there are whole groups of patients who are going to support each other and tell each other about their experiences Having said that, breast cancer is two words, but hundreds of different types of breast cancer. So whilst it is really important to understand what other people are experiencing and maybe some of the treatments that they're having and question whether they're suitable for yourself, it may be that they just aren't because breast cancer treatment is becoming extremely personalised. So everybody should have a patient-centred experience and they need to have the correct treatment for their particular type of cancer and they will be different nuances which sometimes on the surface don't seem the same but actually when you speak to your clinicians will say well we thought about that but actually in your particular case you're not suitable because but if you don't get the opportunity to ask that question then you don't understand why you may not be offering something and I think that then you start to wonder and question.
1: Gemma on that point I want to come back to you if I may because because you also pushed back in order to get a mastectomy didn't you
0: um yeah so there's there's a couple of steps in my my journey that I've pushed back a little bit um and or asked why Mm -hmm. um just to try and understand for me personally feeling in control and having knowledge of what's happening rather than just being passive is very important Um, I know that there are people that have mental health issues and actually having a lot of detail doesn't help them. Um, So I think what's important uh, um, is, as well as the medical treatment being personalised, actually, that collaborative approach is personalised to the patient as well. Um, I've spoken through my work with um, secondary sisters and I'm in a a couple of support groups online, like you mentioned, Joe. Um, of lots of different ladies that are going through this Um, and I see a a broad range of approaches from oncologists from um, you know someone being told there's no point in doing that um, to other people feeling part of the team and that um, initially I on my diagnosis there was discussions before they knew that I was secondary there was discussions about well we would have chemotherapy we would have mastectomy Um, When they found out that I was secondary, um, the only discussion was about systematic maintenance treatment. Um, And so I at that time, I I turned around to my breast surgeon. I said, oh, you don't think I'm worth operating on anymore Um, because I felt as a secondary patient that basically what she was saying is you're treatable, but you're no longer curable. So we're not going to do all that we would do if you were a primary breast care breast um, cancer patient when you said um, that she, what, how did she respond she said no 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 that's not what I'm saying um, and I you know from my perspective I was in a cloud of what on earth is happening here this was in my very first discussions with her um, but she remembered that conversation so when I'd been through all of my active treatment my chemotherapy um, she arranged a call with me and she said I know that this was really important to you so we'd like to offer you a mastectomy um, And actually, they whilst they offered me a mastectomy, there was a lot of "Do you really want to do this?" You know, you are a secondary breast cancer patient. Um, it's not the normal standard of care to have a mastectomy if you're secondary. Um, And again, the range of communication as to why that would be the case differs from people being told there's no point um, to other people being told. You know, in my case, it was it may make a difference. It may not. Um, They couldn't tell me either way. I did have a discussion with my um, oncologist where he mentioned that in other cancer types, there is research that taking away the primary can interrupt signaling with the metastatic disease. Um, But he did press that that um, hadn't been researched and proven in breast cancer. Um, But to me, that was enough. Um, But what was important about that stage is that they were willing to have that conversation with me. Um, I was having a conversation with my breast surgeon about how I felt about that, how it would make me feel mentally and being able to remove some of the the cancer from my body. Um, Because logically, I was thinking, well, if my maintenance drugs have got to try and keep this cancer asleep, then surely if I remove as much of it as possible, I'm going to help it in some way. And yeah, I had two, three, four conversations with my team around that before we actually went through and, and did the mastectomy, which was then followed through with radiotherapy. So I felt like they were treating me as if they wanted me to live for a long time rather than just let's give you your drugs and send you away and just write you off as an incurable um, patient, which I know is not how they would think. But psychologically, in my perspective, I was thinking, well, I'm not going to be one of these people that's cured. And so I'm just going to be sent away because nobody's going to want to spend any time or resource on me. And that's not that is not my experience at all. I am very collaborative with my oncologist. Um, I've actually just pushed him as well for a second opinion. (laughs) Um, And like you say, Victoria, I think in doing that, we shouldn't feel bad about asking for a second opinion I trust my oncologist implicitly we are a team we've discussed things at every stage so that he knows that I'm happy about it Um, but I think what I would say to anyone who feels like they don't want to be difficult and they don't want to ask for a second opinion one it's the way that you ask I told my oncologist I trust you implicitly I'm not looking to change practitioners but at this stage in my journey my cancer is waking up um, and I need to change drugs. And for my, I've got um, HER2 positive breast cancer and hormone positive breast cancer. Um, so the option of the second line, there's two potential drugs um, because of the recent nher HER2 that's that's been making waves. <laughs> People have been talking about, i I'm very impressed with. Um, and so for me, it was a question of, is this the right time to change drugs? And if it is, what is that drug? Um, So I said to him very politely, I trust you implicitly, but because this is an important stage in deciding what to do next, I really would like another opinion from someone else on on what they think should come next. Um, And I, for weeks while I was getting that second opinion, I actually felt really bad. I think it's very British of us, isn't it? We don't Mm want to question people. We just want to say, yes, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'll, I'll go away and do as you've told me to um so it doesn't sit naturally but um i then had a meeting with him where we went through my scans and he said yes i think we should get this second opinion i'm actually he said i'm actually really interested to see what this other consultant says um because this is what i think but like you said breast cancer or cancer treatment is so personalized now there's not really a black and white answer to anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and often with secondary breast cancer, you're talking about timings, um, which weapon you bring out at what time. You know, it is not it is not simply right. We're at the next stage. This is what we do. It's not obvious um, because it depends on you personally, how you might have handled drugs previously, um, where so you're what, metastatic.
1: What did the second oncologist say? Did oncologist number two agree with oncologist number one or did they have different opinions? Yes,
0: so I I didn't tell him what my oncologist had said, but he did say um, the same. They differed slightly in my hormone treatment. One of them thinks that I should maybe stop that. The other one said there's research where actually continuing that is helpful. Mm. Um, And so the conversation that I'm having with my oncologist today is to decide what we do going forward. But I... As the patient having asked, I feel now reassured that I've had two brilliant minds that have agreed and told me that what comes next um, is the right thing to do. Mm. And I just, I just think it's important. We're not shopping for a car or choosing where to get our grocery shopping. You know, for me, this is every step feels like life or death. Um, And I'm also really conscious that my oncologist is, you know, I'm one of many, many patients. He's only human. Um, I think we think that they're going to be insulted, but actually their job is really stressful. They're making life and death decisions every day. So actually to be able to run their opinion past someone and have that kind of um, educated discussion about what comes next, I don't think we should be bad about giving them license to do that.
1: Thank you for your advice on how to ask for a second opinion. The wording is really important, so I'm grateful for Mm -hmm. that. Um, I'm I'm aware of the time. I'm aware that Joe Franks is going to go back to do surgery in a moment. So, Danielle, I'm going to ask for your advice to listeners when it comes to sticking up for yourself um, in in talking to medical professionals. What would you say?
2: Yeah, I think it's just reiterating everything that Gemma just said. It's it's definitely the way that you do it. Um, But I think... Intuition and that feeling of knowing that something isn't right. Um, definitely being guided by that, but keeping a balance about it. I mean, the difficult thing for me now, in the last seven years since going through that, is if I feel anything else now, my mind will automatically go back to that feeling and that time. So I'm. It's trying to rationalize everything now. To think, not every aching pain now can be something sinister. Um, So we are all kind of on a daily basis fighting that battle in some way to kind of know what your body is telling you, but to keep that rational side of your brain. So it's definitely um, a balance and, you know, just kind of the awareness just to raise awareness. I mean, again, that's the whole reason of feeling like coming on this podcast to just reach out to those people that are in that situation, have those doubts do go back and get that checked and and
1: give yourself that reassurance. Joe, final few words of advice from you to our
3: listeners. Um, well, I, I agree with everything that you've said and I I think it all does come back to this relationship with your team and the clinician that you meet in your first appointment and, and how you feel as you leave. And hopefully it will be empowered, either mm. that you have reached the correct conclusion, both you and the clinician, or that you're going to come back and be looked at if there's some uncertainty and and with regards to second opinions, I don't think any consultant ever minds a second opinion. I, I You know, um, we all appreciate that what patients are going through is really tough. and um, And if you are confident in your decision making, then you will never mind an opinion from someone else. And we're very used to it because all patients are discussed at a multidisciplinary team meeting. So we have lots of opinions about patients all the time. And it can be really helpful because sometimes when you have a relationship with a patient... And when you've had breast cancer, you see your consultants regularly and you do get a rapport in a relationship. Sometimes someone coming in with a fresh view is really helpful because mm. you can get quite blinkered, both yourself and the patient. And someone can come around and go, oh, have you thought about it? And go, oh, that's a brilliant idea. Why don't we try that? Yeah. Um, for what it's worth,
1: certainly in the early
3: days when I was uh, meeting my
1: consultant, Mr. Katari, at Ashford and St. Peter's Hospital, and Utra, who's the amazing um, breast cancer care nurse, in the early days, I used to say, Mr. Katari, what would you do if it was your wife or daughter or sister? And for some reason, the answer to that always made me feel a little bit reassured, He, as though he was taking my cancer personally. I'm not suggesting that's the most uh, elegant or original way of, of, of asking questions, but it certainly helped me. Um, Gemma, thank you so much for being on this podcast. We really appreciate it. And thank you for your openness and for your advice and help as well.
0: Thank you. Thanks Dan- for having
1: me. Not at all, Danielle. Thank you so much uh, again for being with us. We really appreciate it. Uh, and Joe Franks, you. you are literally a legend because <laughs> you are now hopping in a taxi to go back to to <laughs> carry out operations on women. And so we're very, very grateful for your time as well, Joe.
3: Well, thank, thank you. you for yours.
1: And Then Came Breast Cancer is brought to you by the Future Dreams Breast Cancer Charity, which provides practical, emotional and psychological support for anyone diagnosed with the condition. It's a factory original and six foot six
0: production. Our podcast is intended to be a message of support for everyone who has been touched by breast cancer. And that's why our guests share their personal and unique stories with you. They express their personal opinions, which don't necessarily reflect those of future dreams or our sponsors. Our guests' individual stories do not constitute medical advice and shouldn't be treated in any way as a substitute for professional expertise or a consultation with healthcare professionals. This podcast is not offering to treat your cancer, but it is trying to help by talking about it. So hopefully you realise that you are not alone.